This past January, I helped lead a geopolitical trip to Israel with another minister and a rabbi and members of our congregations. Unlike visiting the holy sites, which we did, but is something like visiting a museum, hearing the voices across the Palestinian-Israeli divide disabused us of simplistic notions for peace, and yet revealed an insatiable hope among the people that it will come someday. Yad Vashem, to the memory of the victims, to the memory of the nameless ones, to the memory of the mothers, to the memory of the fathers, to the memory of the children, he sits half-naked next to his brother, who lies on the sidewalk, wrapped in rags in the sun. People walk by aimlessly, going nowhere, for they have nowhere to go. They are imprisoned in Warsaw's ghetto, caged, starved, diseased. Who recorded this remarkable footage that plays in the dim light of Yad Vashem on a Thursday in the 21st century? The depth of horror perfectly revealed in the child's eyes, eerily accustomed to his plight as he waits to die, captures the evil of the perpetrators, and the question no longer matters. The camera stops, dwells on the face of the boy sitting in the sun. He squints, turns his head, almost searching, then stares blankly. He blinks once, then again. His skin, draped over his skeleton, hangs like a sheet his face and neck smeared with dirt as if he'd been playing in the backyard on a summer day. You can't see the faces of the figures walking back and forth in the grainy film. They are the adult versions and variations of the living dead. The camera focuses lower on the little boy who stares blankly past his memory of a toy wooden boat, of his mother lighting the candles of Shabbat, of his father Shoulders draped in his talit, emptied of hope, he stares as people pass hurriedly by. The Abbey of St. Mary of the Resurrection. Before he entered the order in France, as a young man reading his Bible, dating a young girl, Olivier discovered Jerusalem, woven like a golden thread through the story of God's people. His heart, stolen by the Holy Spirit, he left the girl, entered the order, and came to this complicated city claimed by three religions. The convergence of sacred traditions and suffering in this barren land called to him. In the French Crusader Chapel of the Abbey, with its faded frescoes, Frere Olivier sings Gregorian chants. Resonant Latin fills the room for dignitaries, army recruits, and tourists lucky enough to get here when his tenor voice from the Latin to near, meaning to hold, stops. The room rings with the sung words of a dead language, resurrected by a human life, devoted and in love with the spirit that calls him here. The old monk's story and music connects visitors to everything, links them to the centuries, ushers them back into this Christian chapel in a Muslim neighborhood in a Jewish state, part and parcel of one human race. Olivier stands at the monastery gate, holds the hands of every visitor in both of his, looks them in the eye to wish Godspeed. He is the brother who traveled 
from beyond the curse of Cain and Abel, beyond the so-called remedy of an eye for an eye, to this blood-soaked land. The last two poems reveal the transcendentalist in me. They take place in western Connecticut and Lake Winnipesaukee, New Hampshire. Ralph Waldo Emerson said that there is nothing in us nature cannot heal. I agree. Trail run. Landscape, as Wang Wei says, softens the sharp edges of isolation. Charles Wright. We pushed up the path. I slipped on loose dirt a half mile later, tripped over a root grown high on the trail, caught myself once or twice before almost falling face first. Up and down we ran through the woods like when you were a kid and I was a young athletic father. My heart beat heavily as we ascended, caught up to itself as we came down, legs burning, turning to rubber. The quiet beauty of western Connecticut catches you. Craggy regions of my soul softened. I uttered a silent prayer of thanks for being able to run with my son on a Saturday morning. The woods removed from the village stood in silence. I wanted to remember this moment, glistening in the fading sunlight of my years. Our feet thumped the forest floor. We talked in clipped exchanges when the trail flattened out about the perfect day and the crisp, cool air. I relished your accelerating the pace, confident I would respond. Impulsively, we tagged in our gasping, flagging, staccato conversation how we wished your brother were here and other random thoughts from the heart. Trees, earth, rocks, and creek undulating land, moldering leaves, weeds and wild flowers, and creatures that inhabit air, land, and sea. This blood-stained earth is our home. What works counts. The sacrificed sculpt the future with stunning design and efficiency. Darwin called it grandeur, the progress of species. In one fleeting moment, stepping between rock and root, I saw you ahead of me, running the trail alone. It's the last poem, Song for the Silhouetted Hills and Dark Lake. The crickets chirp like nature's metronomes with the pulse of the planet, but the music of their single notes and alternating silence is the music of the sea and stars, music that surrounds and permeates each living thing and every rock and ossified bone buried under the layered civilizations. It is the song sung by creation, ordered and operated by laws beyond us, etched into our coming and going as we sink down to darkness. The song is a mating call, timed with the temperature of the turning season, made by the wings of the male, rubbed together like the wooden stick of the monk circling the lip of the brass bowl. Its sweet, swelling monotone signals the dark mystery that formed every plant animal and tree, and then the human heart. Out there beside the porch, under the screened windows, along the moss and stone path, through the garden of seagrass, clematis, and rosebush, from dusk to dawn, they chirp to the silhouetted hills and dark lake beneath the purple dome of heaven. Thank you.